pray our pastoral prayer. Let us pray. Pray with me. Lord, first, we come to you. Thank you this morning for the grace that is found in Lord Jesus Christ that you have bestowed on us, Lord. We're so undeserving of it. Lord, we're undeserving of everything. We're undeserving of your protection. We're undeserving of your hearing us. But we're undeserving of even life. But Lord, you are so gracious to us. You're so good to us. You're so loving to us, Lord. And we owe you all praise, honor, and glory for everything. You hold us fast, as we sang earlier. Your promises never fail. And Lord, we thank you that you always hold on to us. It's not, Lord, that we hold on to you as much as you holding on to us. Lord, there are times that our faith does fail. There are times where, where we're weary in this journey, in this Christian walk, in this Christian way. Our walk gets weary. But Lord, as the psalmist tell us, may we look up to you. You are a shield around us. People may look at us and say, oh, your God is not going to deliver you. Where is he? But Lord, you are a shield around us. You are our glory. You are the one who lifts up our head. Lord, you are the one to whom we can call and you will answer us from your holy mountain. Lord, when we lay down to sleep and when we wake up in the morning, you are with us. You sustain us. In the middle of the night when we can't sleep and we're looking on our phones for something to keep us company and give us comfort. Lord, you are still with us. You still sustain us. When friends betray us. When family members don't understand why we believe in you. Lord, you still sustain us. Lord, I pray this morning that you encourage each and every one of us in here this morning who may be weary, who may be burdened. Those who brought their burdens here, Lord, that they lead them with you. Lead them at the foot of the cross. Lord, we may be burdened by many things in this life. Lord, we bring them to you. We bring them to the Lord Jesus because Christ himself said to us as it is written in Matthew the 11th chapter verses 28 through 30 Christ calls out he says come unto me all you who are weary and are burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest to your soul for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord Christ calls us to bring our burdens to him. There's no burden that we have that is too heavy for our Lord. Well, whatever burdens we have right now, whatever things we've been praying for that just don't seem to be getting an ear from you. Lord, may we cast them upon you. Your burden is light. You can bear the heaviest of burdens. Lord, you bore the greatest burden of all, and that is our sins. You bore them on the greatest thing, and that was on the cross. Lord, you bore the burden of our sins, the weight of our sins, the, the guilt of our sins, the 
condemnation of our sins, the curse of our sins on the cross. So Lord, there's no burden too great for you to carry. Lord, may we cast them upon you. First Peter 5 tells us, casting all our cares upon you because you care for us. Lord, if no one else cares, you do. And even if other people do care, you care the more. Help us to know, Lord, that you will hold us fast, that you are faithful to your promises, that you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. Help us as a church, Lord, as we go out into this community, individual members, representatives of the body of Christ. Help us as a church, Lord, to remain faithful to you, to remain faithful to your word, to remain faithful to our commitment to serve one another, to serve you and to serve our community. Help us, Lord, to not bow the knee to any cultural whims that go against your word and go against scripture. Help us as individuals as we go out into this world, whether it's into the schools, uh, whether it's in, on our jobs, whether it's among our family members, whether it's in the public square where we're out in public, Lord. Help us to hold fast to your word, to be faithful to you, to be true to you, to be true to your word to be good ambassadors and representatives of your kingdom. We represent Christ every time we step out of these doors. We represent Christ. We represent Christ and him crucified. And Lord, we pray for our other churches, other men, other like-minded brothers as they preach We pray, Lord, that you be with them this morning. Help them, Father. Help them to preach faithfully your word. Be with them, Lord, this morning. Help them to shepherd their flock well, to shepherd their churches well, to your glory and to your honor. Men here in this nation and men across the nation, Lord, help them all to preach and teach your word well, to do what is pleasing in your eyes in their congregations. May they be faithful shepherds of the flock of God. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you this morning for the privilege to preach your word. Help me, Father. Assist me by your spirit, by the power of your spirit to preach this text well this morning to your glory. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate these truths that we will hear. Illuminate your word, Lord God. Illuminate your truth. Show us what you would want us to hear this morning. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Man, let's turn to the book of Ephesians, the first chapter. Is it, is it recording? <clears throat> Amen. We're continuing our series in Ephesians. 
We continue through this section of the book of this chapter. This is the last section of this chapter before we get into chapter 2 uh, next week. And our topic today is the power of God working for us. Not just in us, but for us. And as I was preparing this week, I was really excited studying this because I was thinking to myself that as believers, and I'm including myself because I'm a believer, sometimes we don't realize the power of God that is at work in our lives by his spirit and how powerful God's power is and how we as Christians, uh, as one of my old Pastors used to say, we're living beneath our privilege as saints of God. It's like you have resources available, but you're not using them. And sometimes as Christians, we can fail to realize that we as believers have the power of God working for us on our behalf for his glory. But we may not always feel quote powerful but it's not about feelings it's about what the truth or what the reality is so let's look at our verses here I'm going to start back again at the 15th verse this is the context of this whole prayer that Paul excuse me is praying but our focus is going to be verses 19 through 23 so it says for this reason because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you or making mention of you in my prayers. And the prayer uh, petition begins at verse 17, the things that he prayed for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this prayer crescendos to Christ. It crescendos to Christ. It builds up. It builds up. The point of this all is Christ. The point of God's power working for us is all about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So God designed the church for his glory. He designed us as saints for his glory. He gave us all these spiritual blessings that we talked about earlier in this chapter. He blessed us with the riches of his glory. And with all of that, his power given to us by the spirit we are called to walk worthy of our 
high calling as saints. So one question is that we can start off with is why this is the introduction here. Why do we need God's power? Why do we need God's power? We live in a nation. We live in a culture. We live in a world <clears throat> where uh, people are more focused on self. They're more focused on uh, actualizing their best self. In other words, living their best life. You know, manifesting. That's another very uh, powerful cultural word. People are all about manifesting, speaking things into existence. Creating good vibes so that good things can come to them. You hear about people talking about positive and negative energy as if we are in control, as if we are God, as if we can command nature, which God created. We can command the universe, which God created, to bow down to our every whim. The secular worldview, as opposed to the biblical worldview, the secular worldview says that man is in control. That's the secular worldview. That's why you have people that, that are saying, my body, my choice. I have a right to kill my baby in my womb. Why? Because it's my body. I'm in control of my body. I'm in control with what I do with my body. If I want to mutilate my flesh and Get some things cut off because I believe the lie that I could be the opposite sex. Then guess what? I should be able to do that. Why? Because it's whose body? It's my body. I'm God. I'm the God of my body. I have all the power. I have all the glory. I deserve all the praise when I do it. Why? Because I'm God. I'm worthy of worship. That's what our culture says. We are in a spiritual war. We are in a war against Satan and his world system and against sin with the standards and purposes of a holy, sovereign God. We are in a spiritual war. Paul said in Galatians 5 that the, the, the flesh, the sinful flesh, wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's within us, each, each and every one of us. Do we feel the pressure of the battle that we're in in our nation, in our culture? The assault on biblical values? Is that a fever pitch? And people are telling Christians, you can't be Christian. You can't believe what you believe. It's encroaching out the companies that we work for. Our workplaces. Our friend circle or so-called friend circle as I call them. It's all on social media. It's being pumped out and pumped out and pumped out. We are being attacked. And because we're under spiritual attack, guess what? We need to tap into God's resources and God's power in order to live a victorious life. In other words, guess what? We will become discouraged. We will become depressed. And we will become casualties of this war. We'll be rendered ineffective and useless for fighting. We, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, we are soldiers. We are in the army of the Lord. 
Those of us who are believers, guess what? We're in the army of the Lord. We're in the Lord's army. We are soldiers. We are called to fight against sin. We're called to fight against the evil powers of this world. We're called to fight for the truth. Jude says that we are to contend earnestly for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. We are to contend for the truth. We are to stand on the truth. We are to proclaim the truth. And guess what? When we do that, it's going to be a fight. Why? Because people love darkness rather than light. We live in a nation where right is wrong and wrong is right. As Isaiah 5 said, God says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil and bitter sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in that culture now where what was considered right is now considered wrong. We are in a war. The war has come to us. We didn't start it. We're out living according to God's truth, according to God's word. The war has come to us. But guess what? We have the tools to fight this war. We have a commander in chief who is invisible. But he is still active in this world. He can't be seen physically. But he's visible in all of all that he has created. Both things that are visible and, un, uh, and invisible. We have the power of God. And so what Paul is doing in this passage here, he's pointing the saints to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ as our commander in chief. We don't want to have a unhealthy dependence upon human spiritual leaders. We have leaders, or even I'll say on human leaders, period. We don't want an unhealthy dependence on a leader, a spiritual leader, or a human, a regular human leader, like a president. If we vote so and so into office, everything's going to turn around for the better. No, it's not. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote. But what it means is we know that these men that lead our nation are sinners. Some of them were sinners than others. But they are not going to lead us to where only God can take us. They don't have the power that only God has. We're not to have an unhealthy dependence on them. And what the truth is, people, is that our enemy, Satan, would try every type of technique to discourage us but God provides an answer in this passage that we're going to see this morning we have the same power available to us that was evidence in Jesus Christ just as we have the same spiritual blessings and privileges that are identical to those of our Christ all these spiritual blessings that God has given us we have in Christ. So we want to look this morning at God's power working for us. So let's look at our passage here. We'll look at two principles 
Number one, God's power is more than sufficient. That's the first thing. In two ways, by definition and also by uh, illustration or example. So Paul says here in this passage, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his greatness or his great might that he worked in Christ. Now, he talked about the immeasurable greatness. Now, the nature, the extent of this power is great. But first, let's look at the word power. In the Greek, power has four different meanings, but they all uh, mean the same thing. They have a cumulative effect. Okay? So, the first Greek word is the word dunamis. D-U-N-A-M-I-S. Dunamis means strength, might, or power. We get our word dynamite from the word dunamis. Where else do we find the word dunamis? If you look at the book of Acts, this is uh, after the 12th disciple was chosen. This is when God had uh, instructed the disciples, the new 12, to tarry or to wait in Jerusalem. Acts the first chapter. This is at the ascension, after the ascension of Christ. Okay. So, the beginning of the chapter was Luke giving his introduction. And then Jesus told them in verse 7, you will not know the times or the seasons. But look at verse 8. He says, uh, well, verse 7 says, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive what? Power. You will receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So he said, you shall receive power. That Greek word power is dunamis. You shall receive power, might, and strength when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So who gives us the power? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So right now, they didn't have the power. But on the day of Pentecost, guess what? The Holy Spirit fell on them and they received that power to go and witness and to evangelize the gospel and to help spread the gospel. So that word power here in Acts 1 and 8 is the same dunamis that we're speaking of. So that's one of the meanings. You shall receive dynamite. You think about dynamite. Dynamite is something that's what? It's explosive. And not only is it explosive, it is effective. Okay? So dynamite is not just something that explodes and destroys. It is also effective. 
So he was telling them, you're going to see this power is going to be an explosive power. It's going to be an effective power. So when we're looking back in this passage here in Ephesians. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, his strength, his might? Okay. Another Greek word for power is energia. You can almost tell what uh, root word that is for, the word energy. Energy or energia, the Greek word energia means power in action or working power. And we see that in the latter part of this verse. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. So the working means the energy, the power in action. So you have energy, which is the working power. The third Greek word is kratos, K-R-A-T-O-S, which is the strength exercise in the activity that you're doing. It's the strength that you're given during the activity. It is dominion. And then ichus, I-S-C-H-U-S, is inherent ability. It is strength that is possessed. So those are the four Greek words for power. And all of them have a cumulative effect of meaning that this power is something that is in action. It is something that works. It is something that is mighty. It is something that gives strength. It is something that is exercised in doing an activity. So Paul is talking about this power, this, this dunamis, this energy that God gives us. We are energized by the Holy Spirit. He energizes every believer. And then also the measure of this power, he says here, it is immeasurable. It is exceeding greatness, as some translations say. You can't measure God's power. You can't exhaust it. It goes all beyond what we can ask for. As Paul said in uh Ephesians 3 and 20 to him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we may ask or think. So God's power is that way. It is. We can exhaust God's power. You have perhaps billions of Christians, trillions of Christians, perhaps who have lived throughout all of human history and none of them ha have exhausted God's power. You think about things that have power like a battery. I got these, uh, you know, these. Uh, rechargeable batteries that I use in in this uh, microphone and in these microphones they don't have limitless power when the light turns red then guess what it's time for them to be recharged and when you plug them into that outlet it goes to uh, a substation somewhere and that substation power goes to uh, probably the hydroelectric plant down there uh, going towards Raglan where Alabama Power has the hydroelectric plant down there, all these dams and everything, all that power is harnessed there and then sent out down to our houses and to our plugs in our houses. But that's not limited and limitless. I'm sorry, it's not limitless power. Because if something, ha something happens to the power grid, like it did in Texas a few years ago when they had that winter storm, and people didn't have power for weeks, 
Even the power that man creates is limited. It can be exhausted. Exhausted means to be used up. God's power is limitless. We can exhaust God's power. That's why Paul says it is what? Immeasurable. It can't be measured. So he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of whose power? His power. And look at this preposition here. Toward who? Us. Is the power of God working for us? God uses that power towards us who believe. So my question is, why would anyone fight on the other side when we have all the power? God's power works toward us who believe. When you become a Christian, guess who you have on your side? God. You have all the resources and power that is available to you. And all throughout scripture history, you see this at work. You see it in Egypt. When Pharaoh was so stubborn and he hardened his heart towards the command of Moses to let God's people go. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart and sent those ten plagues. Overwhelming this stubborn man of a king. And the Egyptians, with God's help, overpowered Pharaoh and defeated them. It was God's power that delivered them out of Egypt. It wasn't Israel's power. It was God. When God told Moses to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, and he stretched that rod out over the Red Sea, and that Red Sea parted both ways on either side, and the ground that, uh, at, at the base of that um, sea was dry. Whose power do you think there was that did that? It was God's power. The power was not in Moses. The power wasn't in the staff. The power was in God. It was God's mighty power who made that possible. God is powerful enough to part a sea. We can't go in our tub and part the water. It's going to come back together or in our sink. Or one of those little dishes out there. You, you push your hand, guess what? That water's still going to come back. You can't hold it back. But God's power can do that. This is God's mighty power that we are talking about that is working on our behalf. And when we go to spiritual war, guess what? We have God on our side. You know, I remember one of my favorite hymns I sung at my old Baptist church growing up was onward Christian soldiers. It went onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see that banner go. I just love singing that hymn. It was like onward Christian soldiers, like march forward. And it was talking about war, talking about the spiritual war that we fight every day as believers which is marching forward onward Christian soldiers why because we're marching with the power the banner of the Lord every single day this mighty power is working for us it is working on our behalf 
I think about uh, Gamaliel in the book of Acts when he told those who were opposing the disciples that you're wrong for fighting against God. He says this in Acts, the, the fifth chapter here, um, that these people who were opposing the disciples were foolish because they're fighting against God. It is foolish for the world to rebel and to fight against God. It says here in Acts 5, 39, at Gamaliel. So this was when uh, the apostles were arrested and they were freed. Verse 33 says, When they had heard this, they were enraged. These were the people who had uh, wanted Paul uh, dead, Paul and Peter dead, rather. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are to do with these men. For before the days, before these days, uh, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, so he was being sarcastic, saying, you know, the, you know other men were like these before, and, and it, their cause turned out to be nothing. Of course, he was wrong. So anyway, verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And guess what the people were doing? They were opposing God because these were God's apostles. So what Gamaliel was telling them is that if it is of God, you won't be able to do what? Overthrow them. There's nothing that you can do to stop God. So when we're looking at this power that we have as believers, this immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, guess what? We have that power and no one can overtake us. Yes, they may be able to hurt our flesh, our body, but they cannot touch our souls. They're not in charge of our eternity. I often quote that scripture from Matthew 10 where Jesus said, don't be afraid of him who can destroy the body but not the soul, but be afraid of him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Be afraid of God, not of man. You have God's power within you, Christian. You have nothing to fear from any man on this earth. They're mortal. They will perish just like you, but the only difference is they can't take your soul. They can't take away the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. They, take, they can't take away the fact that you are in Christ. You're in Christ in your life and you will be in Christ in your death. They can't take that away from you. That's why we have countless thousands of Christian martyrs 
who went to the death for the faith because they knew that those who were persecuting them, those who were killing them, could not touch their souls. Many of them still proclaimed Christ, even while they were being burned at the stake. Many martyrs did that. Why? Because they knew that these people, these evil people who hated God, could not stop God. As much as they tried, they couldn't do it. They could not stop God's power. They may have thought they were. When they crucified Christ, guess what? They thought they had stopped all this Christianity business. But guess what? Three days later, he rose from the dead. And who raised him from the dead? God did, as we see in this passage. They thought when they crucified Christ that they had stopped him. They think that when they persecute us, guess what? They're going to stop us. No, 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 my friends. Paul says here, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, I'm always reminded of Romans 8 and 31. If God be for us, who can be against us? No one. That's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. We have unlimited power available. The victory in the war is already assured. The only question is, will we fight spiritually with what we've been given? Next, we see the God, the power of God is more sufficient by illustration that Paul gives. He gives a great illustration in this passage. He says here in verse 20. That he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead. So he raised Christ. And then he seated him. And then he continues. He put all things on his feet. And he gave him to the church to be head over all. So let's look at these four things. So these are the four great acts of God that Paul talks about that he already did for Christ. Number one, he raised him. Now, this is something that we must get right. Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Okay, you got to get that theologically right. Paul says here that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So it was God who raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection represents the best proof of God's might. Only God could do this. Only God can raise a dead person from the dead. Always when New Testament writers want to show the fullness of God's love, they always talk about the resurrection. They always point to the resurrection. The chief demonstration of God's power is in the resurrection. God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. That is the ultimate of God's power. Let me ask you this question. Can any of us go to, what's the closest cemetery? The one over there on 10th Street? Can any of us go over there to the cemetery on 10th Street and look at that person's name? I think uh, one of the founders of Anderson is over there. 
uh, Alfred Noble or Sam Noble, one of their graves over there. Can we go to their grave and say, Samuel, rise forth, as Jesus told Lazarus. <laughs> Can any of us do, does any of us have the power to do that? No. But God can. God can in his power go to that grave and raise every single person in that grave from the dead. He can. Why? Because he's God. That that he creates, he has power over. So it was the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And so the proof of this power, again, was in the resurrection. And what Paul is getting us to do here as we think about the working of his great power is to look at the risen Christ. And why is this important? Number one, because God's seal is upon his son. Okay? Christ linked his divinity to his resurrection. God also validated Christ's claims by the resurrection. Because all his enemies had to do was produce a body to prove that it was a hoax, but guess what? They couldn't do it. All the doubters could not produce a body. So they couldn't say that he wasn't raised from the dead. But guess what? God did. God set his seal upon his son by raising him from the dead. Also in the resurrection, the reason why we look to Christ is uh, we see God's guarantee for our future. Because Christ died and rose from the dead, that guarantees our future. That guarantees that there will be a resurrection of the dead. We talked about that back on uh, Resurrection Sunday in 1 Corinthians 15. Because God raised Christ from the dead, guess what? We too will be raised. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of ours. And also, since he ascended in glory, we will have the assurance of inheritance and in our place with him. First Peter 1 says that, First Peter 1, 3 through 4, that we have assurance of an inheritance and a place with him. That's why this resurrection is important. So we see this power according to his great power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And not only did he raise him from the dead, but what else did he do with that power? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Christ is seated at the right hand of God because of God's power. This is what we call the exaltation of Christ. Christ seated at God's right hand is Christ in his exalted place. He is exalted because he's sitting at the right hand of power. And what this means, the significance of his exaltation is that Christ is restored to his glory. And remember, I think I explained this last week. Uh, sitting was a mark of honor and authority. Like a king sitting basically in session. That's what it's like. A king seated on his throne in session, ruling 
and reigning. That's what that seating is about. That's what it symbolizes, especially people in this culture would know because you had a lot of kings and rulers then. If you saw a video of uh, old ancient kings, you would see them sitting on a, a very royal seat. The back is like way big. The king may be five feet tall, but the seat is like 10 feet tall. They're sitting in this giant seat, usually with a scepter in their right hand, like an ornate rod, a scepter of righteousness. Just like when uh, 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 Queen Esther went before um, King Ahasuerus, you know, she had to uh, approach him. He had to extend his scepter to give her permission to come into his presence. So when we think about being seated, it, it, is, a, it is a mark of honor. It is a king sitting to receive his subjects. And we see this in uh, scripture where uh, God is pictured as ruling on his throne because he is the ruler. And then it is also a picture of court sitting to render judgment. If you notice in courthouses, the judge has a seat at the top of the courtroom. He's not sitting down on the floor with everyone else. You know, you got the prosecutor's table on this side and defense table on this side. You got a little stenographer there. You got the witness stands. The judge not like sit it down there in the front. He's seated in an exalted position. This, this goes back to, to, to the Bible. That's why judges sit up like that in courtrooms. Because that's how justice was administered from the throne of the judge. That is a picture of Christ. So when God, by his power, seated Christ at his right hand, that's not him just sitting down and just chilling out until he's ready to come back. No, he is sitting in power. He is sitting and he is reigning and he is ruling. So this was a seat of power. It reminds me of Psalm 110 and 11, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's sitting, he's subduing his enemies. And we're going to, when we get the application, we will see what all this, all this means. He's also seated as a teacher. Because one with authority is one who teaches. A person doesn't have authority for the sake of just having authority. Like your boss may, <laughs> right? You know, you know how some people are power hungry? Don't y'all work with people like that? It is all about power in their right manner, in their right uh, fearless. They just want the power. They just want the, the name, supervisor. They, they, they just want the power. They, they don't want to teach. They don't want to serve. They just want the power. But that's not what Christ did with his. Christ, when he was seated on his throne, he was sitting to teach. He taught with authority. When Jesus was speaking, you look at Matthew 5 and 1, it said that the people marveled at him because he taught as one having authority. Look at Matthew 5 and 1. This is right before he gave his sermon on the mount, before he gave the Beatitudes. When Jesus spoke, 
They didn't receive him as Messiah. So of course they marveled. Okay, so seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountains and he did what? Sat down. That was the posture of a teacher, a priest. So he sat down and he taught. That was an authoritative uh, position that he taught as one having authority. Okay, if you look at Matthew 7 and 29. Seven twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and when Jesus finished these sayings, this was after the Sermon on the Mount, which covers Matthew five down to the end of uh, the seventh chapter. This is the greatest sermon in all the Bible. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the last saying he talked about was a house built on a rock versus a house built on sand. And before that, he talked about, I never knew you. The Lord would say, you know, many people say, Lord, Lord, you know. So this sermon wasn't just some feel-good uh, pep talk or TED talk. <laughs> no, he said these things as if he was God, because he is God. And so look at what 28 says here. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were what? Astonished, amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority <laughs> and not as their scribes. Jesus had divine authority. The scribes, they cited other rabbis. Jesus didn't cite the rabbis. He was speaking the words of God. They gave him greater authority. He wasn't just repeating what other people were saying, the other scribes. No, he was speaking the very words of God. So guess what? He was speaking with authority. So he sat down and taught. As we read for, uh, chapter 5, he sat down and taught. So the Sermon on the Mount was him sitting down on the mountain and talking to people. That was the posture. So we see him in heaven. He's exalted right now. Guess what he's doing? He's teaching. So that's the picture that we get of his exaltation. And then also the, the significance of him being seated at the right hand is, uh, of course, we always talk about this. The high priest. He was serving as our high priest. The high priest was always going before God on behalf of the people. And that's what we see Jesus doing in his exalted position. Now, the difference between Jesus and the high priest was the high priest always stood, but Jesus was the exception. The writer in Hebrews talks about this. I'll read this for you. Hebrews 10 verses 11 through 14. And the writer says this, and every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until 
His enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. We just talked about that. That goes back to Psalm 110 and 1. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. So the high priests of the Old Testament, they stood in performing their service. But Christ as the true high priest, he what? He sat down and ruled. Christ intercedes for us. He mediates for us in a sitting position. He pleads our righteousness before God in a seated, exalted position. He's not exalted by standing. He's exalted by sitting. If you notice all these false preachers and all these false apostles walking and all these false bishops, they want to stand up and everybody to applaud them and to worship them. They don't have the humility to sit down somewhere and shut up <laughs> and stop claiming to be something that they're not. No, they want all the power. They want to be exalted. They are raised up. They are standing up high. But Jesus, the true high priest, he ruled as he sat in session. And so next we see the measure of his exaltation. So it says here, seated him at the right hand of God in heavenly places. This is the measure of it. Far above all rule, all principality and all authority and all power and all dominion. I like the word in here. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So for all time, Christ, because of God's power, is above all principality, is above all power and dominion. In every name that is named, Christ's power is greater than them all. It is greater than them all. You know, the thing is, the world loves power. The world seeks after titles and honor and authority, even in the church. You have men, I've, I've said this all the time. Men calling themselves apostles. Look, people, the office of the apostle died with the last apostle. I think the apostle John was the, the, the oldest of all the apostles. The office of apostle died 2,000 years ago. All these people claim to be apostles now, they're false. There's no such thing as an apostle. I don't care what they wear. <laughs> all these vestments they put on. I don't care how big their church is. I don't care how good they hoop and holler in the pulpit. They are not apostles. They're seeking what? Power. They're seeking titles. They're seeking authority. They're false. And you don't listen to them. Because they are false. They are not true preachers of God's word. There are no ifs, ands, and buts about it. I don't care how much you like them. They're false. 
They're not apostles. They're all about power. That's all they want. They want people. Oh, praise the Lord, apostle, 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 apostle. People don't even call them by their first name. They call them apostle. Bishop, 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 bishop. Listen, people. Bishop is an office. It's not a title. Paul, when he was giving instructions to, to uh, Timothy, anyone desires the office, let me, let me give y'all a Greek lesson right quick. Bishop, overseer, and pastor come from the same Greek word. So they're all the same office. An elder, that's the other one. Bishop, elder, overseer are all the same as a pastor. The same Greek word. I can call myself bishop. I could because it's the same office. But people who seek power, they create like levels. You got the bishop, then you got the overseer, and then you got the elder. They, they, they made it like offices of, well, and above bishop is the apostle. And then the other apostle is the chief apostle. I mean, what you going to do after that? You ran out of titles now? What's going to be next? But you see how foolish that is? We was part of a church system like that. You had the elders. I was a church elder. Then you had the overseers who were over different churches or whatever. Then you had the bishops who were over the overseers. That's not biblical, people. That's part of the reason why we left. We found out that's not the biblical church model. These people have taken offices and made them into titles. And you call them by that title. I used to tell people, don't call me elder. My name is Ronald. Friend, tell you when I was officiating uh, one of my former students' wedding, and the, the girl who was um, the the director, she said, uh, uh, <laughs> "It was so funny." She, she said, uh, "Elder, I, I, I don't want to miss my blessing. You want me to call you Elder or Ronald?" I said, "You call me Ronald," and I have nothing to do with your blessing. I, I said it a little nicer than that, but I was like, "You call me Ronald. I I, I can't bless you, girl." I don't want to miss my blessing. What, by misnaming me? My name is Ronald. It's not Elder. You don't have to ask me, do I need to call you Elder or Ronald? Call me Ronald, please. I just want to make sure I don't want to miss my blessing. Because that's the kind of church that she was probably brought up in. I'm making, I'm saying all this to make a point. Men who seek power have to subject or subjugate other people. They have to make people beneath them. That's what they do. So they say the, the apostle is above the bishop and the bishop is above the overseer and the overseer is above the elder and the elder is above the deacon and the deacon is above the lay member. Why? Because the world loves power and seeks out the titles and honor and authority. But what is Paul telling us here? All, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Christ is above all. Christ is supreme above all. Not these fake people running around here. Christ has it all. Christ has all power. 
The power of the church belongs to Christ, not some person that's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Not someone who was made from dust, just like you, or as my old folks used to say, they put their pants leg on, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. They don't walk around with an aura around them when you see them in the grocery store. They look just as plain and ordinary as you do. I don't care what kind of high expensive of a car they pull up in. You see some of these so-called apostles in public, they look just like regular people because you know what? They are. They don't have no little halo around them and, and you know, they walk around with the oar and a big swinging robe and, you know, you got to kind of step out their way a little bit and praise the Lord, apostle, good to see you out here buying your groceries. I didn't know you went grocery. I thought maybe you paid somebody to buy your groceries for you. But then you see them in church and it's like, man, people are just bowing down to them. Treating them like they're God. That is not how you're supposed to reverence your leaders. You're supposed to respect them. You're supposed to respect me as your pastor. But you're not supposed to worship me. I'm not your God. I will fail you. I'm just telling you that now. I am a sinner saved by grace. You respect the authority of your pastors that God has given them. The Bible calls us to do that. The elders worthy of double honor. But you don't worship them. Christ is the only one who is worthy of your ultimate worship. Not a man or not a fake pastor woman because women can't be pastors. Christ is above all. So God's power, the same power of God that is working for us is more sufficient. It is at work in Christ. The same power that exalted Christ is the same power that works in us for this reason to exalt Christ. This power is not used for us to exalt ourselves. This power is not used for us to think that we're God and that we can manifest things and that we can speak things into existence or we can speak on things. Don't speak on that. What do you mean don't speak on that? I don't have no power. You don't speak on that, man. That's a man of God. The Bible says, touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. They're using that scripture out of context. David, when he quoted that scripture, he was talking about Saul because although Saul was trying to kill him, he told his men, don't kill him because he is one of God's anointed. He was still the king. But they used that to say, oh, you can't say anything bad about. Well, not say anything bad about him is good, but you go to them. But they say you can't speak. You can't speak on them. Look. Christ has all power. Give it to him by God. And that same power is at work in us who believe. And that power is above everything. The world loves power, but only God has all power. And this power also, lastly here, gives Christ dominion over the universe. It says here, 
in the last verse, he has put all things under his feet and gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who feels all in all. Paul quotes Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans. He quotes Psalm 8 and 6. So Psalm 8 and 6 was fulfilled by Christ's exaltation of all creation and also his head over the church. Now what does head mean? When we think about the word head, we think about uh, in our modern day like the head of government. Okay, or head of household. When you think about head of government, the head of our government is the president of the United States. The head of the president is the house and the senate. The head of a city is the mayor. The head of the mayor is the city council. The head of the home is the, is the, is the husband. The head of the church is who? Christ. Not the pope. The Pope is the head of the Catholic Church, but the Pope is a false head. And the Catholic Church is not true church, as Catholics do think. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is. So Paul says here that he has put all things under his feet. And the Greek word for all is all. <laughs> okay. All things. And all things means that Christ has dominion over all things. All things, when he says all things under his feet, all things are subject to Christ and his rule. All things in everything is subject to our Christ. All things, people. And remember, this charge was given to the first Adam to exercise dominion over the world. The purpose of God has always been dominion. When, when, when God uh, created Adam, he told Adam what to do what? Adam to name all the animals. That's dominion. We, as image bearers of God, we have dominion over creation to steward creation to God's glory. We have dominion over the earth. The earth doesn't have dominion over us. We have dominion over animals. Animals don't have dominion over us. God created us to fulfill uh, the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and to fulfill the earth and to subdue it, to make the earth work for us. We don't work for, quote, Mother Earth, which is no such thing. No, we work the earth. We make the earth more productive. That's why we plant that's why we grow vegetables. That's why we have livestock and, and all these things. We have rivers and all, all these things, creeks and just, you know, building, using the materials, the wood and everything to, 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 to build and sustain. God gave us that dominion to do that. If, if, if not, it wouldn't be anything on this earth at all, period. It would just be grass and trees and water. <laughs> but no, he gave us the power to have dominion, to have rule over this earth. And to be good stewards of it. So. When you think about this dominion. Christ is like the master of the universe. 
He's the ruler over all. Including what? The church. So it says here, head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Think about this. Christ has so identified himself with his church. that It is said that the church is his very body. That's basically what Paul is saying there. It gives a picture of uh, Adam when Adam said uh, to Eve, I think Genesis 2 is before verse 27, uh, where he says she is what? Flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. Basically, he was saying Eve was his actual body. That's where the one flesh union comes from when uh, husband and wife are married. They become each other's flesh and each other's bone. So my wife is my f- the flesh of my flesh and the bone of my bone. So that's where that comes from. So the church feels all creation as representative of Christ. All of this because of the power of God working for us. The same power that has done all of this is working for us. So as we close, I just want to ask a couple of questions here just to think. In areas where our faith is challenged to doubt, do we get to the point sometimes, in all honesty, this is just something to think about, that we doubt God's, uh, the ability of God's power to work on our behalf? Do we have a tendency to do that? Doubt the ability of God's power to work on our behalf. Are we guilty of that? Do we doubt God's power to work on our behalf as believers? The same power that raised Christ from the dead. And number two, what keeps the power of God from being unleashed in our life? I think it comes from the lack of belief in God's power. Lack of belief that we have God's power. If you are a believer in Christ, you have God's power. You know what I mean? You're going to have supernatural power like a superhero in a movie. But you're going to have his power to withstand the trials that come your way. You're going to have power to persevere in your faith. You're going to have power to press on and press forward. You're going to have the power to continue to love, honor, and serve the Lord. To love and serve his church. You are going to have that power to look to the risen Christ as your hope. So God gives us the exceeding greatness of his power. The vast resources of his power. To live for and to work to his glory. He has defeated our enemies. It says in here, put all things under his feet and gave him head over all to the church. We, if you're a believer, you're part of the church. And you're part of what has power of all these things. We have nothing to fear, people. We have no person to fear because we have the power of God working for us. Amen. Man, let us pray as we get ready to close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that 
we have power from you as you endued the disciples, the apostles in the first chapter of Acts with power from on high to be witnesses. Lord, you have given us your power, your exceedingly great power. Help us, Lord, to live by that power, to walk by that power, to walk in that power, to not fear man, to not fear what can happen to us, but to always look to you, Lord God, to always pray to you, to always trust in you, to work that power out in us. Lord, as we walk out this place today, as we go throughout our days and our week, may we not forget your power working on our behalf in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.